everybody, welcome to another episode of the Abnormal Psychologist podcast, uh, hosted by Dr. Colby Taylor. Um, I'm a psychologist, licensed in the state of Tennessee. I'm also a faculty member at Christian Brothers University in Memphis, Tennessee, and I'm actually recording this lecture from campus at Christian Brothers University, so my sound quality might be a little bit different. Uh, anyways, today's episode, I thought we would talk about involuntary commitment. And this sort of comes about as a mailbag request. So the mailbag email says, Hey man, just started listening to and enjoying the podcast very much. I'm 27 in my first year of psychology schooling. Um, my comment is about the disappearance of mental institutions. Um, I noticed there's a lot of mental health issues in the prison system. Um, and my question is, do you feel that there's a better way to deal with the mentally ill, regardless of severity, than throwing them in a cage every time they mess up? Um, obviously, people like Bundy shouldn't be allowed certain freedoms versus the person with kleptomania or someone with uh, a bad upbringing that may need CBT to better themselves. So that's a great question. And if you remember back to like the second episode of this podcast, I think we're talking about the history of psychopathology. Um, I'm a critic of the revolving door of mental health that we have right now, right? So we've moved away from institutionalization, or we say we moved away from institutionalization, sort of with the ending of the asylum movement. Um, and now we have sort of this revolving door phenomenon where we have frequent flyers to emergency rooms or to psychiatric facilities. Um, oftentimes these people are impoverished. Um, they struggle with serious mental illnesses. Um, they go to the emergency room. Um, they're seen or held for maybe 48, 72 hours. They're um, released uh, without getting sort of substantive inpatient therapy. A lot of these people don't have insurance. Um, and then uh, they show back up days or weeks later until eventually they're arrested and uh, then they're treated through the prison system. And I think also in that episode I mentioned that the American prison system is probably uh, one of the largest treaters of psychopathology in the United States, which is very, very problematic. So as a short answer to your question, yes, I think there's a better way to deal with the mentally ill. Um, I don't think that this current system that we have right now of the revolving door is working. Um, but I think that also that we would have to sort of tear down the insurance system in the United States. And I think that it would be very involved. Um, and I could probably spend two hours talking about this. Uh, but when I was thinking about this, I was thinking maybe it would be cool if I did an episode on involuntary commitment, which you might know of uh, by different names. Um, it's also called civil commitment. Um, for listeners in the United Kingdom, it's also called sectioning. Um, and so this is sort of uh, the thought that you can uh, put somebody in psychiatric care um, against their will. I guess hence the involuntary part of involuntary commitment. Anyways, this deals with the idea of parents patriae, that your parent can be your country. They know your best interests better than you. And so in this instance, right, when somebody's a threat to themselves or to other people, they might not be operating in their own best interest, their own self-interest. And so um, the court system or the country needs to take over. This also sort, sort of parallels with medication, right, um, against one's will, especially any psychotic medication against one's will. Um, that in some ways you might be able to be medicated against your will if it's, you know, in your own self-interest. Now, it's kind of complicated proving that you're operating against your own self-interest, right? This can be sort of vague and subjective. Um, I mean, 
can you involuntarily commit somebody who's about to abuse opioids? I think we'd all argue that opioid abuse is a dangerous behavior. And most people would agree that it's acting against one's self-interest. So can you be involuntarily committed for that? Or we could take a step down and say, can you be involuntarily committed for marijuana usage or alcohol usage? You know, where do we draw the line that you're operating against your own self-interest? So there's different theories, and we'll see this played out in state law, um, as to when involuntary commitment uh, should be enacted. So uh, if you're a threat to yourself, uh, most states are going to allow that. And this is going to be sort of a state-by-state thing. We'll talk about this in a little bit. You're not going to have really national law talking about involuntary commitment. Each state has their own rules that they'll sort of play by. Um, so when I operated in Hawaii, when I was practicing in Hawaii, there was um, different criteria for involuntary commitment, different forms, different people that had to sign off on the forms than where I'm practicing now in Tennessee. Um, anyways, uh, you're a threat to yourself, you're a threat to others, um, then grave disability. So with grave disability, you can't take care of yourself so that serious injury or death is probable. Um, and by probable, we define this as over a 50% chance if you could assign odds to it. Um, and this comes from a Supreme Court case, Addington versus Texas in 1979. In um, the court's words in this uh, decision, there has to be clear and convincing evidence that serious injury or death is going to occur. Um, and in Addington versus Texas, uh, it deals with the case of Frank Addington um, he was psychotic, and he was accused of assaulting his mother. Um, he had a prior history of seven civil commitments, so he was a frequent flyer, um, and he'd been sentenced to inpatient mental health care for an indefinite amount of time. Um, and that's where the Supreme Court case uh, uh, came into play. You know, it was there clear and convincing evidence that serious injury or death was going to occur. Um, again, this case took place in 1979. What we're going to find in today's podcast is that a lot of stuff happened in the 1970s. Um, anyways, so that's grave disability, um, that serious injury or death is probable. Um, there's also sort of a need for treatment argument, where some states allow involuntary commitment if someone has a need for treatment. And they're also treatment non-adherent. So if they didn't receive the treatment, which they don't want to receive the treatment, it would be hazardous to their condition. Uh, Michigan has a law that incorporates need for treatment into their involuntary commitment paperwork. And what we're going to find is different idiosyncrasies in state law invo uh, involving involuntary commitment. So I mentioned Tennessee has different criteria than Hawaii. Um, so every state has their own sort of rules that they'll play by. But all of this criteria has to operate within the confines of Supreme Court rulings, like Addington versus Texas. Um, and they also have to operate within the confines of the United States Constitution, and particularly the 14th Amendment, which you'll see cited a lot in involuntary commitment court decisions. Um, so let's get into the practicality of this. What, what goes into involuntary commitment? Um, and again, this is going to vary on a state-by-state -state basis, but we usually have two stages. Um, the first stage is usually an emergency evaluation, and then the second stage is a second evaluation for inpatient commitment. So the first stage, the, or the emergency evaluation, might occur after a 911 emergency call. And so usually law enforcement officers or paramedics, first responders, will perform this evaluation. What's interesting, when we look at state-by-state -state law, in 23 states, any person 
uh, regardless of their training, whether they're first responder, Joe Blow on the street, whatever, can petition for an emergency evaluation. Um, after the emergency evaluation, if the person is deemed a threat to themselves or others, they're usually taken on to the emergency room or to a psychiatric facility where they'll undergo another crisis examination, uh, an examination to see if they'd benefit from uh, inpatient um, uh, services, right? Acute hospitalization. Um, so this sees whether they meet criteria for, uh, you know, inpatient commitment, which would be, you know, longer than a couple of hours, usually, you know, 48, 72 hours, depending on the state. Different states will have different maximum um, uh, involuntary inpatient um, criteria. Anyways, um, in some states, uh, the second evaluation has to be done by a physician or a psychologist. But again, this varies state by state. Some places it still can be done by Joe Blow on the street. Other places it can be done by like a clergy member. So we're going to see all sorts of variation in state law. Um, uh, and also uh, a lot of variation into how long somebody can be civilly committed for. Um, all 50 states plus D.C., allow for involuntary commitment if somebody's a threat to themselves and others. Um, so across the books, if you're a threat to yourself or others, you can be involuntarily committed. Um, 46 states allow for involuntary commitment if someone is a grave disability to themselves. So again, getting back to that grave disability idea that you can't take care of yourself so that serious injury or death is probable. And again, probable is over a 50% chance due to Addington versus Texas in 1979. Um, Let's talk about another Supreme Court case here. Uh, we'll talk about Tarasoff versus the Regions of University of California, which again is out of the 1970s, 1976, so it came a little bit before Addington versus Texas. So if someone is a threat to themselves, you also have a duty to warn uh, people who they're a threat to. Um, and this comes from Tarasoff versus California. Tarasoff versus California is a case that also involves involuntary commitment. Um, so the Tarasoff name comes from Tatiana Tarasoff. Uh, she was a female student at Cal Berkeley in the late 1960s, and her boyfriend had paranoid schizophrenia. Um, her boyfriend went to the campus health center, saw a psychologist there, and the psychologist there recommended that he be involuntarily committed after he expressed some homicidal ideation towards his girlfriend. Um, so he talked about killing Tatiana, who wasn't present in the session. Um, the psychologist had some misgivings about this, recommended that he be involuntarily committed, and he was. He was involuntarily committed for a short amount of time, um, but then afterwards he was released, and he tragically ended up killing his girlfriend, Tatiana Tarasov. Um, so after uh, the murder of Tarasov, um, the campus health center was sued for not warning Tatiana about the threats her boyfriend made in session. And so this is where we get a duty to warn as a psychologist. So we don't just have a duty to involuntarily commit, call the police, whatever, if we think somebody's a danger to themselves or other people. We also have a duty to warn the other people that the person might be a threat to. Um, so that's another sort of Supreme Court case from the 1970s dealing, um, I guess, peripherally uh, with involuntary commitment. Um, again, sort of on the history train of involuntary commitment, um, in my second podcast episode, we talk about Dorothea Dix, um, who was sort of an advocate for um, ending the asylum movement, because asylums at that point in the mid-1800s had become uh, deplorable, they had deplorable conditions, and they were sort of warehouses uh, for people with mental illnesses, and also people that were impoverished. Um, and because of these really poor conditions, 
Um, she sought for asylum reform, which eventually ended up in uh, sort of the deinstitutionalization movement um, decades later. Um, uh, again, going back to the 1970s and sort of history, so fast forwarding a roughly 100 years, more than 100 years from Dorothea Dix, uh, we had the famous Rosenhan experiment. And so this, again, occurred in the 1970s. Uh, and this comes from the work of David Rosenhan at Stanford. Um, his paper was called On Being Sane in Insane Places. And uh, his research project involved faking psychotic symptoms at 12 different psychiatric hospitals across the United States. I think it was 12 uh, different psychiatric hospitals across five states or something, if my memory is serving me correct. Um, uh, but it involved eight people, and this included Rosenhan himself, um, acting like they were psychotic and uh, then being admitted into psychiatric hospitals. So all of them were able to sort of fake bad, malinger, and get admitted to psychiatric hospitals. So you often see them in research referred to as pseudo-patients, um, which is sort of troubling that you can be institutionalized without actually um, uh, being psychotic. Um, another sort of 1970s-related historical event, um, if you're in Florida, you might have heard of the Baker Act before. This was passed in 1972. Um, this is a Florida law only, but you'll see it um, referenced nationwide. And uh, with Florida's law, um, if you're mentally ill and you voluntarily refuse treatment, um, but you're also at the same time a threat to yourself or others, Florida can civilly commit you for up to 72 hours. And so you'll hear the Baker Act talked about um, a lot as an involuntary commitment piece of legislation. Uh, but again, it's Florida-specific. You can be civilly committed for 72 hours if you refuse treatment, but you're a threat to yourself or others. Um, and this came up a few years ago in the case of Nicholas Cruz. Uh, Nicholas Cruz was a perpetrator of the school shootings at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in 2016. And Nicholas Cruz had made threats to kill himself, other people. Um, he used a pencil sharpener to cut himself. Uh, he claimed to have drank gasoline in a suicide attempt. And this all happened in a span of five days. And so a concerned citizen had called the police saying Nicholas had weapons and was going to explode. But there was no Baker Act involvement, despite you know all of these troubling events happening in the span of uh, five days. Um, so anyways, that's the Baker Act, 1972. It's a Florida law. Um, 1960s, um, closer to Memphis, so about an hour south of Memphis is Oxford, Mississippi, where uh, the University of Mississippi, which is also called Ole Miss, is located. Um, so we had the case of Clinton Washington King Jr. Uh, Clinton Washington King Jr., as a civil rights figure, he was the second African American to run for president of the United States. Um, he ran in 1960, and he also tried to integrate Ole Miss in 1958. Ole Miss, University of Mississippi. Um, personally, I hate Ole Miss. They're a big rival of my University of Memphis Tigers, and just really not an Ole Miss fan. Uh, but anyways, when he tried to integrate the University of Mississippi, um, which was segregated at the time, he was arrested and involuntarily committed. Um, he was put in a Mississippi psychiatric hospital. Um, uh, fortunately, he was later released, but again, this was a troubling case of a civil rights violation, a 14th Amendment violation um, due to involuntary commitment. Um, James Meredith would later apply and help to integrate Ole Miss um, three years later in 1961. Um, uh, just recently in national news, um, this was like two days ago, this came out, uh, in Hawaii, there was the case of Joshua Spreitzerbach. Um, Joshua Spreitzerbach 
uh, was involuntarily committed in Hawaii. Um, he was arrested, and he said that his name wasn't who the hospital, the psychiatric hospital, said he was. And they thought he was delusional because they're like, "This is your name." And he was like, "No, it's not my name." Uh, when in reality, they had the wrong person. So it really wasn't his name. They thought he was psychotic, but he wasn't psychotic. He wasn't having these delusions that you know this wasn't really him. Um, and he was held wrongly in a Hawaii psychiatric hospital for two years and eight months. Um, so a very recent case of involuntary commitment. Um, I guess in wrapping up this episode, you might be asking, is involuntary commitment a, a good thing? Um, you know, and there's mixed research on this. Um, there's an article by Testa and West from 2010 that states that people are more likely to have more suicide attempts, more treatment noncompliance, have further hospitalizations, and serve more jail time than people who have similarly severe commitment symptoms who do not undergo inpatient involuntary commitment. So um, uh, that Testa and West article uh, claims that involuntary commitment is a bad thing. But we have other research, um, like that of Danzer and Wilkes Stone, it finds that involuntary commitment reduces psychiatric symptoms and leads to better treatment outcomes. So again, I think that sort of on a case-by-case -case basis, um, involuntary commitment uh, might be a good thing, might have its merits, um, but then also when sort of in the wrong hands or applied to the wrong case, um, uh, there can be definite harm that comes from it. Um, anyways, that's civil commitment, involuntary commitment. Uh, I could probably talk more on this topic, and if you have more questions about it, or questions on anything, episode requests, send them to ctaylo41 at cbu.edu. I'll try to answer them. I know I'm behind in my mailbag requests, so I'm thinking maybe my last episode of the season, this is the second to last episode of season two, uh, I'm going to take a break for the holidays and then start season three. Um, I will um, maybe just do it as like a... a a mixed bag episode where I address um, some of the, the dozens of mailbag requests um, that I've gotten over the past month or two. Um, anyways, until that next episode, the last episode of season two, take care, stay well, and for United States listeners, I hope you have a happy Thanksgiving.